Today we'll be in Titus chapter 1. If you want to just turn there with me. Okay. I guess let's maybe start with opening in a word of prayer. Lord, I just want to come before you again this morning. Lord, I pray, give me strength and confidence and help me to teach your word truthfully. Help me to teach it well. And Lord, I pray that your word would speak to your people this morning and that I would not hinder it, but rather that you would help me to help it and help me to teach it in a way that makes sense. I pray this in your name. Amen. So, We'll be going through chapter 1, verses 5 through 9 today. Um, The primary focus of these verses is Titus' task and authority and his qualifications, sorry, and the qualifications of an elder. I want to quickly just summarize the context of where and when Titus was written because not everybody might have been, because not everyone was here last time I was, I had the privilege of preaching. It was Pinkson, so... It's a little empty. So Paul wrote the epistle to Titus after leaving him on the island of Crete to put what remained in order and appoint elders and instruct the Christians there on what a Christian household should look like. Crete was a large island off the coast of Greece and it was known for its immorality. The Cretan culture worshipped many false gods, especially Zeus, who was the king of their false gods, and their legend said that Zeus had been born on Crete, so they were very proud of that, and that was a very big part of their culture. As far as timing would go, it would seem that sometime between Paul's release from his first Roman imprisonment and the second imprisonment, he was tra- he traveled to Crete and probably around on it. It's possible Christianity had spread to Crete before Paul got there, because there were some in the crowd in Acts who heard... Um, now I forget the reference, but it was it refers to the even Cretans heard the apostles speaking in tongues in their own language. But after his preaching and the um, sorry, it was possible Christi- Christianity had spread to Crete before Paul got there. But after his preaching and the completion of Titus's task, there would have been um, Christianity would have been properly established there. So with that brief background, let's read our text for this morning. So starting, this is Titus chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So, there's dire consequences to unqualified or disqualified leadership. It can and it will cause all manner of problems. It's vitally important that we know what to look for in elders so that we do not cause harm or abuse to come upon ourselves as members of a church and that we would not be responsible for giving platform to a man who would give reproach to the name of Christ. So Titus's task is outlined quite clearly in verse 5. 
This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. It serves two purposes. It both tells Titus what his task is, and it establishes his authority as one left by the Apostle Paul to appoint elders in every town. If we look at the methods used by Paul in his missionary journeys recorded for us in, or I'm thinking of the one recorded in Acts 14, 21 through 23, we see that in the past he's traveled through a number of cities and preached the gospel, and then on his return trip as he's going back with, um, back through those same cities, he strengthens the churches and he establishes elders. Um, I'll just read from Acts 14, 21 through 23. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So based on Paul's prior practice, Timothy was probably left behind to complete the work in Crete. We don't, we're not told why Paul had to leave early, but for whatever reason he did, possibly to keep, go, keep going and sharing the gospel in more and more places. Um, so he left Titus behind to complete the work in Crete by establishing elders and correcting any bad teaching and behavior that would have remained from before they had be, the Cretan believers had been saved or that was brought in by the Judaizers, Judaizers or com, some combination of both. Titus's objective was essentially to work himself out of a job. His task was to get the new churches across the island of Crete to start them on a sorry to start them on a firm foundation, doing the fine adjusting, anything that it took to get the um, the believers there and anyone in leadership to have a good solid foundation to understand what the gospel is, what the Bible teaches. Um, and then the end goal would be to get them to a point where they would be self-sustaining and self-reproducing churches run by the locals there. This job, as well as other mentions of Titus throughout the New Testament, help us to see that while Titus was young, he was, the, he was a trusted co-laborer of the Apostle Paul. So before we look at the standards from verse 6, is, six through Eight and the or through nine, I'd like to read a quote from John MacArthur's commentary. It is not that God's basic standards are higher for pastors or uh, and elders than for other believers. Every believer is to be perfect as their heavenly Father is perfect. It says in Matthew five forty eight, a Christian who lives a careless, impure life does not forfeit forfeit salvation. But Paul's point here is that a Christian man who lives that way does forfeit his right to lead God's people, and in that sense. God's standards for pastors are higher. End quote. Some passages of Scripture are pretty hard to apply. Some seem a bit vague, um, and they take a good bit of study to understand what it is that this means and how it applies to us today. But that's not the case with these verses in Titus. They're immensely practical. We are still working on establishing membership here, but the next step after that is to establish elders. So a list of the qualifications of elders is pretty simple to apply and extremely useful. From the following verses, there's two specific applications I'd like everyone to consider. Remember that these qualifications, think about them, pr 
pray and prayerfully consider who displays these qualities as the coming months roll around and we consider um, eldership. But also, secondly, and certainly not any less importantly, look at these qualifications, remembering that they're the qualifications or they're qualities that every one of us should be working towards. Look at these qualities and examine yourselves. When you see an area where you feel inadequate, or if you see several, pick one and focus on it. Make a daily conscious effort to grow in holiness and your likeness to Christ. Because these, none of these qualities are only for elders or only for someone else. Each one of them is for each one of you and myself as well. Verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So first and foremost, an elder must be blameless or above reproach. It depends on the translation you're using. The word translated here carries the idea of being completely blameless. It's not, to use a modern example, it's not like in a court where a man gets ruled as guilty or acquitted of a crime but rather it's the absence or lack of even a charge or an accusation against him. He has such a pure and blameless reputation and history in conduct that there are no accusations against him. Paul himself is an example of such a man in Acts 25, verses 23 through 27. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. I should maybe say this is Paul got arrested in Jerusalem. This is, uh, yeah, he's, he went back to Jerusalem. There was a big riot. He got arrested. He tried to speak to the people and they all just lost it again. Um, so then this is sometime after that. Now they're trying to figure out what to charge him with. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa, and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore I have brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in sending such a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Festus isn't even sure what to say Paul is charged with. He doesn't even know what he's done. So he's asking King Agrippa for some help to try to figure out, like, what do we even say this guy did? Because I can't come up with anything. Nothing worth arresting him. And when they've examined Paul and they hear, they've heard his defense, they come to this conclusion recorded for us in Acts 26, 31, and 32. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if, if he had not appealed to Caesar. And so this man that would be an elder, if any charge would be brought against him, he must be such a man that the charges do not stick and that those who know him would say that that can't be true. I know this man and he would never be guilty of that. This doesn't mean that the elder must be perfect. Like Tim Challey said while he was here, if only perfect men could be elders, then there would not be any elders. But to be an elder, a man must live what he believes. He can't be a hypocrite. 
He has to be known to be honest and upright in his dealings among believers and non-believers alike. There can't be anything in his life that would call his virtue, his righteousness or godliness into question or allow a serious accusation to be made. He must be the husband of one wife, to continue on in the verse. What Paul is referring to here is the sexual morality of the elder. Being the husband of one wife refers to the faithfulness of that man to his wife. It implies an inward as well as outward sexual purity. We might say it today that the elder would have to be a one-woman man. He's completely devoted to his wife with a track record of faithfulness. This qualification doesn't mean that a single man is disqualified for being unmarried. The call for purity applies to the married man and the single man alike. And if the single man has a record of purity, then he could also be made an elder. This did, however, disqualify anyone who had multiple wives. It was a common but sinful practice in that day, and it would have also disqualified anyone guilty of an unbiblical divorce. A widower is not disqualified either, as long as he has always been the husband of only one wife. What I mean by that is if he, if a man is married and his wife passes away and then he remarries, that does not disqualify him. And at its heart, this qualifi- qualification is a call to be an example of the biblical design of marriage, a one-flesh union between one man and one woman for life. The next part, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The qualification that his children must be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, at a glance, because it uses the word believer, it would seem to disqualify a man if he had any unsaved children. If someone had seven children and one of them seems to be um, to not be born again, then that would disqualify him. But I don't believe it's that simple. The word translated as believers has a semantic range, which means it can have a range of different meanings from generally obedient to the bo- right up to being a born-again believer. So if you'll look with me at the parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5. It's just actually my bookmarker. Okay. 1 Timothy 3, verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? In, in reading that, we can see Paul is talking there about the obedience of children and how the elder manages his home. It's clear that the children must be submissive, and it's che- clear that the elder must manage his household well. It does, however, not clearly say that the elder is responsible for the salvation of his children. And I say that hesitantly because I could very easily be misunderstood. It's my belief and conviction after studying that a man is not disqualified if his children are not born again because I believe that to require the salvation of all of a man's children is giving human action an unbiblical role. I don't mean to say this to get any man off the hook as far as biblical leadership and discipling in the home go. Those must be present. In fact, if they are not present, I do believe he has disqualified himself. He must be bringing up his children, if he has them, in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, and he should be an example of a godly father that anyone in the congregation would do well to emulate. He should, as a result, have a godly household, who, if they are not saved, either yet or ever, 
have heard the gospel taught, have seen its transforming power lived out in the life of their father, they should see the consistency in what he believes and his actions at all times. The children should be led, loved, discipled, instructed, and submissive. But I do not want to lay a responsibility on a man that is not his. It is God alone who saves, and I don't think what the verse, I believe that this verse is not teaching that it is the fault of the father alone if his children do not come to faith in Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God to salvation, and it is God who draws and the spirit who convicts. The earthly father cannot actuate the salvation. He cannot cause that saving work to take place. A man can certainly be disqualified, though, if he fails to manage his household well, and how a man manages his household will help or hinder his child's salvation. Parents have an immense influence on their children. Many people have been helped to salvation by their parents, and I'm sure there are also many who have been hindered by their parents. The distinction I want to make it is, is it is not the actions of the father that save any child, and I don't believe any man should be disqualified for something that is not his responsibility. There are many situations that I believe should be approached with grace, because there are many different scenarios. What if a father is only saved after his children leave the home? The, the, as far as possible scenarios go, that one's probably one of the simpler ones. If they're not and have never been a part of a believer's household, I don't think that would disqualify him. But if I, I would expect that if such a man were qualified in all other areas, he has made every effort to share the gospel with his children who have now left the home and will continue to do so as much as he is able. Or what if, in some cases, a man is saved while his children are 18 or 16 or 10 and they miss many, many important years of instruction. Well, what if the child is away at college? Is that child still a part of the elder's household? There's an infinite number of possible scenarios and none of them would be easy to give an instant verdict. But I believe each one should be approached with as much grace as possible while at the same time keeping in mind God's holy standards and not compromising on them. It says his children must not be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. They must be well-behaved and submissive. They must be raised up as a Christian family should be. Um, if the child is not born again at that just yet, the child would still need to be submitting to the, to the parents. And still, um, yeah, he would still... I guess my point is just I don't believe the father can cause his children to be saved. Not by his direct action. It is the work of God. And that is what I don't want to put on a, on a father. But it's, it mentions his children must not be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Debauchery would look like a wild partying lifestyle not unlike the prodigal son. And insubordination refers to the refusing to recognize and submit to proper authority. Well, I believe these standards are still very high for all, anyone who would uh, be considered for the office of elder. And then also, just one last comment on that. While not having children does not disqualify a man, he must prove his spiritual leadership in other areas of family life. And moving on to verse 7, 
for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. The call to be above reproach is repeated twice on a list of attributes that an elder must have. God calls his people to holy living, and the pastor or elder must be set apart. Looks like I forgot to write down where this verse is referenced. And it's now in a great house there are not only vessels of silver and gold, or sorry, gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the home, ready for every good work. The elder is a steward that has been given the responsibility to take care of the bride of Christ while we await Christ's return. As a steward of God, an elder must reflect an image of God's standards and must do his will. If an elder acts sinfully or hypocritically, he more than any member brings reproach upon the name of Christ and the church. Unbelievers and outsiders look at the leadership and make all kinds of judgments about a church. When the elder is, a, is qualified, people see, see them and think, that's a church that I would want to be a part of. I know of a person who joined a church and no small part of that decision was to do so because a member of the eldership was showing humility by apologizing for a mistake made to the congregation on a Sunday morning. They, were, they had made a mistake and they were owning their sin, um, their shortcomings. A saying that I've heard is a church will not rise higher than their pastor. While it's not from the Bible, I believe it is informative. If the perception that the people in a church will not rise above the level of their pastor or elder, um, if people think that, and an elder is not above reproach, many will think, if that's the example they're following, I want no part in that church. If that's the best that they're ever going to get, then that doesn't seem biblical. So... The repetition of the command that, or the qualification that an elder must be above reproach is very um, important and it's been done on purpose. It says the overseer, God's steward, mustn't be above reproach. And then it's further defined for us in the rest of the verse. We are told what he cannot be. He must not be arrogant. He cannot be arrogant or self-willed All Christians are called to be humble. Jesus said this to his disciples in Matthew 20. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Our perfect example, Jesus Christ, he did not count it, um, he did not count it something to be grasped, to be equal with God. And he humbled himself to the point of death. We are to be like Christ, And there is certainly no room in the eldership for a man who desires his own will to be done over the will of God and who desires rather his own fame, his own glory, and his own power above the glorifying God. One of the reasons cited in 1 Timothy 3.6 for a recent convert to not be made an elder is that he may be puffed up with pride. Part of the elder's role is to listen to those who come to him with their problems and to counsel them biblically. And he's to seek out those those wandering sheep, those ones who stop attending or who are struggling. And a man who is self-centered and arrogant or self-willed 
he will have enough trouble um, just listening to people who come to him when they want to. And he will do very poorly if all he cares is about is about himself. Or if all he cares about is himself. And he certainly won't be going looking for those sheep who wander off. An elder cannot be quick-tempered. If a man is prone to argue or anger, whether it be with words or with fists, he cannot be an elder. The way Matthew Henry said it is like this. How unfit to govern a church those how unfit to govern a church are those who cannot govern themselves or their own turbulent and unruly passions. An elder must be self-controlled. He must be um, cool-headed. An irritable man or a man with a short fuse gives good reason to believe that he is not yet qualified to be an elder. They lack the patience, the wisdom, and the grace that is required to lead, feed, and love a congregation full of other people who are still sinful. No one is yet perfect. The elder cannot be a drunkard. Any man that's addicted to wine or any other substance that impairs his judgment or changes his temperament, an elder must always have sound judgment and be clear-headed. And because the elder's position, he is called to be an example and ought to take extra care not to lead anyone else into sin or cause them to stumble. An elder, or really any Christian, I think Daryl's message was on this a while back, Daryl Dick, on um, the weaker brother, on loving and doing it out of love. And the pastor or the elder above everybody else should be willing to not exercise his Christian liberty if it would cause a weaker Christian to stumble. Leaders and those in positions of authority are called to a higher standard, the same standard, but they are to be an example of it. And the Lord, just an example of the Lord having higher standards for the leaders of his people, is found in Proverbs. Proverbs 31, 4 and 5 says, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Anyone in authority must take a special care to always be in control of their thoughts and of their emotions. An elder cannot be violent. Second Timothy 2, 24 and 25, probably just right to the, to the left here, says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. The elder also shouldn't be known for being argumentative. People should not be afraid to disagree with him for fear of retaliation, either verbally or physically. The elder cannot be greedy for gain. Paul is referring to someone who seeks wealth and prosperity at all costs. Anyone seeking to become rich, a lover of money, or thinks they should become a pastor for the pay um, is disqualified for ministry. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 1, and 4, 1 through 4, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The elder especially, but also the Christian, should not be greedy for gain. 
the greatest reward that we should, the greatest reward that we can ever receive and the one that we should be striving for the most is that unfading crown in glory and then in verse 8 we shift gears paul's contrasting what to do and what not to do we look we have looked at what an elder cannot be now we look at what an elder must be he must be hospitable the elder and the believer both must give freely of their time, resources, and encouragement to any and all who are in need of it, not showing partiality, as James warns us against. They must love strangers, and they should have people in their home. The elder should be an example of hospitality and should take advantage of the opportunity to build relationships, to disciple the members of his church and anyone who will come, and to evangelize anyone who may not be saved. The elder must be a lover of good, both of good things and activities and of people. He must be self-controlled, sober-minded or sensible, cool-headed, someone with good judgment. He's in control of himself and avoids foolish things. Under pressure, he doesn't make, he avoids making bad decisions. And when presented with a difficult problem, he doesn't panic and he is gracious. A lot of these seem repetitive but it is all a focus on the elder needing to be above reproach, and it is all looking at the elder's character. He must be upright or just. The elder must be fair, not shorting anyone in business and doing what is right, not what is easy if there should be a difference. We serve a just God. He does what is right all the time. The elder should model for the congregation and everyone who meets him what God looks like and how how God judges and acts. The elder must be holy or devout. An elder should have a true divine direction and purpose to his life, submitting his life as entirely as possible to the will of God. I think, just my personal thought, holiness is something that we too often overlook, or at the very least, um, that's a shortcoming of myself personally. I was grown... I personally was very legalistic growing up and had the tendency to think in terms of how much can I get away with without getting into trouble. And if I was in trouble, trying to say, well, technically we were never told we couldn't do that. And how much, um, and the contrast there between that and holiness is a very stark contrast. Holiness denies itself of fleshly desires. It looks rather to see how much more like Christ can I be? Where do I fall short and how can I improve? Hebrews 12, um, the last part of verse 1 and the beginning of verse 2 say, Lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us, or that which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Maybe I'm the only one who does this, who thinks that way. Or maybe you know of somebody else who needs to hear this, but I would challenge everyone to look at yourselves as well. How can you grow in holiness? You are to be conformed to the image of Christ. He is a perfect example. And I can assure you, I need work, and so does everybody else, but I will. If I start pointing things out, then I need some more work than what I thought. Disciplined or self-controlled. The elder must know moderation. And he must be able to live within his convictions, not a slave to any desires. He must beat his body into submission. Um, 
like the athlete. And, well, there's so many examples in Scripture, metaphors used of athletes, of soldiers, of farmers, people who have to work hard, who have to be doing things with a purpose because if they don't, at the get-go, focus on this, put in the effort and be diligent and control themselves, then at the end, they will be far off and fall, fall far short. I want you to observe how anyone who models the positives given here will not be guilty of the negatives. A hospitable Christian, a truly hospitable one, will not be greedy for gain. They will willingly share what's been given to them, knowing that they're just stewards of this for a time. A lover of good who is anyone who is hospitable, anyone who is hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined, anyone who fits all of those will not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. And in verse 9, we're given the, the skills required for this position. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Paul tells Timothy, Sorry, Paul tells Titus in our text here that the elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as it's been taught. We are not told that he must be a man of exceptional wisdom or intelligence. He doesn't need to be charismatic or funny or a great public speaker or a leader in the business world. But rather, he's supposed to be a man of character, an upright man who is blameless. The skill that is required is that he is able to teach. And he need only teach one thing, and that is the unfailing, perfect trustworthy word of God. The elder is called to hold firm and not to let go of the word of God and to, of sound doctrine, which is all that we, the word of God is all that we need for anything pertaining to life and godliness. It is enough to equip us for every good work. He must have, the elder must have a right foundation firmly placed in the, and rooted in the word of God so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict. Anyone who has ever tried to teach realizes that you very quickly learn how much you don't know. Um, and so the, the elder must know especially thoroughly and well the Bible. He needs to be able to teach it at a level where everyone can understand it. And he must, in his focus, he must focus and remember on 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of God is good for all of these things, so the elder must know the word of God, not just be vaguely familiar with it, but know it well and be committed to the authority and the sufficiency of scripture. And it is impossible to hold firmly to something that you do not know about. It would be like telling someone to walk a perfectly straight line in a fog so thick or with a blindfold on after you spin them around or tell them to go north. They have no idea where which way they're headed. They must know it well and must see it clearly. A great story that illustrates the importance of knowing the truth in order to hold firmly to it was told by Walter Martin. He was speaking with a banker friend of his and he asked him about counterfeit bills. How was it that the tellers could tell the difference between the fakes and the real ones? The banker said they sent their tellers to a course at the National Mint every so often. So Walter Martin asked, just assuming, 
So that do they get taught all the methods of forgery and how to identify each one of them? And the banker said no. They go there and they handle brand new bills for several days and they get taught exactly what the original looks like. And they get so familiar with the real thing that if someone ever gave them a counterfeit bill, they could feel it if something was wrong. And sometimes sometimes it would be that simple. They could feel the material is wrong. Other times they just glance at it and they'll see what it is that's off because they know the every inch of the original so well. It's the same way with the elder's knowledge of the word and sound teaching. He should be so solidly planted and so familiar with what God's word says that he recognizes anything that contradicts it and is not swayed by it. Ephesians 4.14 says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. The elder should know the truth, the Bible, the word of God, well, to such an extent that if there is a false teaching, he not only can recognize it, but he can correct it with the truth. If he hears... Um, an example would be a Jehovah's Witness speaking about Jesus being the archangel, archangel Michael. Um, he should be able to show, he should know that is wrong, as I believe most people do, but also he should know enough of Scripture to show him that Jesus has eternally existed, um, that he is a part of the Godhead, he's part of the Trinity. And the qualification that an elder must be gifted with the ability to teach um, doesn't mean only one particular method of teaching. Um, when Tim Challies was here, he mentioned that maybe someone who would be qualified for an elder wouldn't be would not be a good teacher or preacher from the pulpit, but he could be good at teaching one-on-one -on -one with people or in small groups or in Bible studies or some other um, form of teaching. He must be gifted to teach, but there are many ways of teaching. And he must also be able to rebuke those who contradict it. The elder must be able not only to build up the saints with the word of God, but also defend the truth with it from those who contradict it. The shepherd's job isn't just to feed the sheep. He must also defend the flock from wolves or false teachers and bad doctrine. If you read through more of the book of Titus, You'll hear about the men causing these problems in Crete. Verse 10 mentions that um, they are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. It suggests the Judaizers are causing problems here as well. Verse 14 warns of the Cretans devoting themselves to Jewish myths. Today, I don't think we have that problem so often, but there are are so many other false teachings and false doctrines out there. Um, it's not the job of the elder to know every single one of them inside out and backwards because something new will come up that he won't know what to deal with. But he must know the truth. He must know the original. And so, in conclusion, the man that we consider for eldership must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. His children must, must be believers or be faithful um, as I explained, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright and holy, and disciplined. 
he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The elder must be an example to the rest of the church, but every one of us needs to be pursuing each of these attributes and these requirements, seeking to become mature Christians, ever transforming more and more into the image of Christ. And so, with that, let's pray. Lord, I pray for wisdom and discernment for everyone here. Help us to grow in our conformity to Christ day by day, and as we work through this membership process here at Grace Bible Fellowship, I ask that you would help us to consider already who exemplifies the standards you have given for elders. I pray that you would help us to to be obedient to you and to your word. Let us glorify your name above all else and help us to act as you call us to act and to live as you call us to live. I pray this in your name. Amen.